0: Hello and welcome back to Lutheran Witness Podcast. I'm your host, Roy Askins. Here on the Lutheran Witness Podcast, we share for you the content, read for you the content on the Lutheran Witness website usually. However, today we have some special guests. Before we dig into that, however, we want to give a thanks and a shout out to our podcast partners, KFUO, uh, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere, KFUO.org. Check them out over there on their website, KFUO.org. We are currently sitting in their studios with a couple of wonderful guests uh, today, to discuss archaeology. First, we have Stacy Egger, a staff writer here at The Lutheran Witness. How are you doing, Stacey? Doing great. And she's been working with our next guest, the Reverend Dr. David Adams, professor of exegetical theology and the W.G. Ray and Louis J. Recht ziegel uh, professor of biblical studies and exegetical theology. So welcome, Dr. Adams. How are you doing? Fine. It's great to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. So Dr. Adams has written an article for our September issue of The Lutheran Witness on archaeology, the limits of archaeology, and uh, kind of where we where we uh, how we understand what archaeology can reveal to us about what about the scriptures and what we believe. And so what we have here is an, a discussion between uh, stacy and and Dr. Adams about uh, some of these limits. So Stacy, I'm gonna punt it over to you and let you run.
1: All right, thank you. Um, So first of all, Dr. Adams, I'd just like to start out by asking you, you're a professor of theology, of exegetical theology. Yeah, and just call
2: me David if you don't mind. Okay, all
1: right, sure. Um, So what is uh, your history with your experience with archaeological work? What got you interested in it, and and what experiences have you had in that area?
2: Yeah, well, I think the first thing that I want to say is i'm not an archaeologist okay mm-hmm. you know there are actually very few full-time archaeologists most people who are archaeologists do something else they work for museums or they teach because archaeology is really expensive to do and it's never done year-round mm. so it's only done in seasons of three to eight weeks you know typically on, on most excavations and then the people who are in charge spend the rest of the time either analyzing or preparing for the next year, and they do other things alongside. Now, I'm not even that. I'm just a seminary professor. I teach Old Testament, and uh, on the other hand, I have spent uh, I spent one year in Syria at a place called Karkour, which is kind of a north-central Syria. It was an excavation headed by Elsie um, Lutheran, uh, who's now passed away, and... Uh, it was the place of an important battle in 853 BC where the Assyrians were invading, and uh, there was a coalition of forces that got together to block the Assyrians. And the the only record we have is the Assyrian record. And they said they won a great victory so that the whole plain and the river was full of bodies. You could walk across it. But interestingly, they turned around and went back to Nineveh and didn't come back for a thousand years. (laughs) I'm sorry, a hundred years. So maybe the victory wasn't quite as overwhelming (laughs) as they suggested anyway, I worked there for a year and then uh, four years in Israel at a place called Kirbet Kayafa. The name won't be known to anybody because it's a modern Arabic name. We don't really know what the name of the site was in the Bible, although I wrote the the chapter in the excavation report that suggests that it was most likely a place mentioned a few times in the Bible called Sha'araim. But it's better known because it was the location where David and Goliath fought. Oh, cool. It was... Uh, it's a military fort. A de- it's not a village. It's a dedicated military site built up on top of the hill. And if you remember, First Samuel 17, Goliath looks up and says, who will come down and fight me? And uh, of course, David then goes up there to try on Saul's armor and decided not to wear it and goes back down. And, and the rest is history, as they say. But the, I worked there for four years with Josef Garfinkel, who's professor of archaeology at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. So that's kind of my background. Um, I don't do active excavation work right now, mostly because I came down with cancer a few years ago and that I had to stop for a few years and never really kind of got back. I was hoping to do something this summer, but um, things didn't quite work mm-hmm. out. You made an interesting statement, and I think most people probably aren't aware of this, that
0: there's a season for archaeology. What does that mean? Like, why is there a season? Yeah, well,
2: mostly it's cost, Okay. because to do a... At CAFA, we worked for eight weeks, and this was a decade ago. And at that time, it cost about $70,000 a year to operate the excavation for eight weeks. And that was with nobody getting paid Mm. because all the help is volunteer. So between the equipment and everything necessary to keep it in operation, I mean, you have to have tools, you you have to have porta potties, you have to provide food for people, for a hundred something people in our case. So it's very expensive. And archeology span is very time consuming. It's very, very slow work. Uh, you know, it's not construction work, it's deconstruction work. You're tearing things apart, right? And you're doing it usually with a spoon or a trowel or a brush. So it's um, it's very slow, tedious work. And in Israel, it's mostly done in the summer. It can be done in the winter. Winter's the rainy season there. So it's it's nice and that it's cooler but it's also the rainy season and so it's not the best time to be crawling around in the dirt. Uh, So um, we talk in archaeological circles about seasons. You you work X number of seasons at a particular place. And typically, again, the season runs from three to eight weeks. Uh, Some places only work every other year because of the cost, but it's almost always a cost factor. They could work longer or work more regularly. Sometimes I have a, what we call a split season, where I do three weeks, maybe in the late spring, and then three weeks in the fall. It all depends on. Oh, if 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 say an American school is helping to fund the excavation, along with an Israeli school, then maybe the academic schedules are different, and so they. Try to work things out that way. So there are a lot of variations on the theme, but basically it's a kind of fixed season—not quite like football season, but along those lines, or baseball season, I suppose I should say here in St. Louis. <laughs> but along those lines, you know, you prepare all year mm-hmm. for the active part, and that's the way archaeology works.
1: Very cool. So you use the term biblical archaeology, mm-hmm. and you you mentioned in your article that it hasn't actually been around for all that long. So what exactly is biblical archaeology and what's some of the history of of that field
2: yeah most people would say that the modern science of archaeology at least as it relates to the bible begins about 1798 when napoleon invades egypt now there were there were actually some excavation things done earlier in italy in the classical world maybe in the 1830s i'm sorry uh no, that was later, obviously, mm-hmm. in 1798, but uh, Napoleon went, and, and the reason Napoleon is usually cited as a starting point is when he took his army to Egypt, he also took along about a, a more than 150 scholars, and some of them were in scientific fields that were useful to military, but others were language specialists and artists and engineers and uh, you know, people who knew architecture. And Napoleon wanted to study the land that they were conquering, which was going to be Egypt. So they actually produced ultimately, uh, I think it was about a twelve volume work on the results of the studies that they did. It wasn't a it wasn't an ongoing consistent effort. It was a one-time shot that you know, they were there for a couple of years and then spent multiple years analyzing and, and working on what they had found. Um, but that was really the beginning of archaeology in the lands of the Bible. And uh, even though there was no systematic ongoing effort, it shortly began thereafter. So we usually call that the starting point, although there was certainly an interest in The biblical lands and things before that, going all the way back to pretty much the earliest time. So, as Christianity spread westward in the first few centuries of the church's existence among Gentiles, you know there weren't very as it moved west. The the people who were becoming Christians didn't know anything about the lands of the east, and they were interested. And in those days, it was still possible to travel, especially after Christianity became a legal religion in the Roman Empire. It was easier to be public about being a Christian and to travel and see things if you weren't from Israel or the East already. But the first person to really make a name for doing that was the mother of um, the emperor who Emperor Constantine, who made Christianity a legal religion, Saint known to us today as Saint Helena. And she traveled and was very interested, as was Constantine in the lands of the Bible. And Helena went around trying to identify places where things had happened in the Bible. And she's credited with discovering all sorts of things like the true cross. And uh, she's actually credited with identifying the location where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is today, mm-hmm. and also the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Now, there was already a church, certainly in Jerusalem on that site. It had been replaced by a Roman temple uh, because the Romans had wanted to stamp out Christianity, yeah. so they had put another, put one of, them, one of their temples there. And, uh, but the Christians still knew where the site was. And so um, Helena then had the pagan temple cleared off and began what is still today the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. So has
0: modern science kind of confirmed some of the things—modern archaeology, I should say—confirmed some of the things that she
2: discovered? Well, as it relates to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, I think the answer is probably yes. I think Mm -hmm. after some work that's been done there in the last 20 years especially— I think the majority of the people are satisfied that it's by far and away the most likely location for Jesus' death and burial. And there are some very positive things that have come out of the study of not so much the physical structure of the church, but the the actual small building inside the church that covered what was the place where Jesus is buried. It's called the Edicule, and they did some work on the foundations of that and discovered that they go back to very early times, and so there there are some other factors as well, but I think probably most people who take a fair look at it would say the chances are—in archaeology, you never really know, right? So I always when I talk to students, I always speak in terms of percentages. And I'd say the chances of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre being on the site where Jesus was buried, was crucified and buried, are probably 85% or higher. Wow. That'd be what I would say. Mm-hmm. So um, I, some of Helen, Helena's other claims are not as fully verified. Uh, I'm not quite so sure about the Church of the Nativity, mm-hmm. Um there is certainly a grotto there that is the traditional location of Jesus' birth, but there's less hard evidence probably to back that up. But again, it was a place where the there was a Christian community that had been there from earliest times, and that was what they knew. And we're only talking about a couple of centuries at that point after the time of Christ. So you know, there's a at least at the very least a continuous tradition. I, I wouldn't claim that it's right but there's not a lot of evidence that's wrong either. Mm. Uh, so anyway, after those early years, uh, when the Muslims invaded and conquered Palestine in uh, the seventh century, the 600s AD, uh, that pretty much brought an end to Christians traveling. Uh, Legal conditions changed from time to time, depending on who was the ruler. Sometimes it was easier for Christians to travel, sometimes harder. At one point, one of the Muslim rulers had the Church of the Holy Nativity destroyed. It had to be rebuilt because he wanted to stamp out Christianity. But in the Middle Ages, it became more possible again. The Crusades certainly opened up the door for that. And so there were there, we, we tend to refer to that as the age of pilgrimage. And so there were a lot of things said, written, and done, Uh, a lot of places identified. Uh, By the way, I I should've mentioned back in the fourth century the um, church father, Eusebius of Caesarea, who wrote one of the very earliest church history works, uh, also wrote a book called The Onomasticon, which is a list of names of places mentioned in the Bible. And he indicates where they were or where he understood them to be. So there, I, I forget, over a thousand names, and and not all of them have been identified today. But uh, that's still a useful resource for archeologists. They look at it, they don't always believe it, but they always look at it when it comes to identifying a site. So after the age of pilgrimage, you know, in the Middle Ages, we start to get what we describe as the age of explorers. You know, as Europe kind of became more engaged in the Middle East, kind of as a spinoff of of uh, you know, the, the pilgrimage thing, you get a lot more people who wanted to see the Holy Land. And uh, by the way, it, there was an interesting gap there at the time of the Reformation. You know after the Reformation, everybody lost interest in the Holy Land. Bec- and the reason that they did, the reason that, you know, Protestants did not pursue any interest in the Holy Land was because, Catholic pilgrimage was seen as a spiritual exercise by which people earned merit, and the Protestants were not interested in that. So that kind of brought an end to a century, for a century or so, of people traveling to the Holy Land. But gradually the interest emerged again. So, for example, we know Mark Twain's book, Innocence Abroad, right? Which is the story of Mark. I don't know how much is true. I've read it, but uh, I'm not sure it's all true. In any case, it's you know Mark Twain and some other pilgrims from America traveling in the Holy Land. So that kind of illustrates what was happening at that point in in history that there was a return to not pilgrimage in the so much in the medieval spiritual sense, but just a revived interest in the Holy Land. And uh, this then led in the nineteenth century to two developments. One was, the museum building period, where the major museums, especially in Europe, like the British Museum and the Louvre and the Berlin Museum, you know, sent representatives to all the lands to collect things for their museum collections. And those people also dug and excavated. And that's really kind of the beginning of more systematic archaeology. So you get people... uh, for example, digging up Nineveh and bringing these large stone lions back that were at the gates of the, you know, to the city. And now you can, now you can go to London in a British museum and see them there because they were brought back by Rawlinson, I think, you know, uh, at the time. So you get that development happening and that's why so many of the things that are of interest are in, in, in London, in Paris, and in Berlin. The other thing that began to happen, uh, and by the way, Uh, some of those museum representatives were probably uh, best described as well-educated, articulate, academic thieves. (laughs) They didn't always uh, necessarily uh, maintain a high ethical standard in how they collected material for those museums. But that's another, another issue. That led, in any case, to the beginnings of more systematic, planned, organized study. And probably the person who's most regularly associated with that is a British scholar by the name of Flinders Petrie, who began working mostly in the 1890s, first in Egypt and later in Palestine. And along with that, we had the founding of academic societies like the American School for Oriental Research and the Palestine Exploration Fund that funded work. Uh, And this kind of led to um, really the development of what we think of as the golden age of archaeology between the two world wars where, you know, things were being excavated. There were tremendous developments in technique and and what people were learning. And uh, then after there was a hiatus at the Second World War, after the World War, uh, World War II, that is, Um, We typically divide things at 1967, the Six-Day War founding the state of Israel, and uh, this period was obviously one of increased activity that continues on today, and and so that's kind of a—I'm not sure it's a quick look, but it's probably more than you wanted to know—but illustrates the way that archaeology has developed in somewhat of a haphazard fashion, Mm -hmm. and the role that Christian faith has had yeah. in being one of the driving factors that made people interested in the lands mm-hmm. of the Bible at all.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about that today. You're talking about early on in in the history of archaeology, it's driven by these Christians who, you know, Constantine and Helena, who are reading the Bible and, and they're trying to find these specific things that are mentioned, very much an endeavor of faith. Today, would you say biblical archaeology how many biblical archeologists, how many people on these digs are Christians? Is there any tension between the ones that are and aren't? And and what's the relationship today between the whole endeavor of of these excavations and and scripture, the text of scripture itself?
2: Well, I I don't think there's tension. There's sometimes disagreement about interpretation, Mm -hmm. right? But it doesn't usually descend to the personal level. Um, Christians don't really do archeology span differently from anybody else. And I mean the the technique is the technique. I mean, there's only so many different ways you can dig in the dirt, right? Uh, and uh, so uh, the technique is the same. We follow the same standards. where things differ is in interpretation. And this leads to probably what is the most important thing that most people need to know about archaeology, and that is that archaeology never proves anything. Let me repeat that archaeology never proves anything what archaeology does is provide data it provides information and that those facts that data that information has to be interpreted cuz you never have the whole story we only have little bits and pieces and how you put those bits and pieces together and the the imaginative world that you reconstruct depends a lot on your presuppositions. For example, how much do you trust written sources like the Bible? Some people, and this isn't necessarily even a conservative liberal thing, although when it comes to the Bible, it is more that way, but even outside the Bible, some people just don't trust written sources. I mentioned the Assyrian account earlier of the battle at Karkur, you know, Um, That kind of thing leads people not to trust necessarily the Assyrian records on military history, since they never apparently lost a battle in the entire history of the empire over several thousand years. So because of that, because by that I mean the way that you think about the relationship between written material and the things you find in the dirt, there are differences in how you put the pieces together. So when somebody tells me, you know that they say, "Oh, archaeology has disproved the Bible, or alternately, archaeology has proved the Bible, my immediate thought is they haven't told me anything about archaeology, or they haven't told me anything about the Bible. What they've done is tell me something about themselves mm-hmm. and their presuppositions because it's the way that you know we find the same, things in the dirt. We all know what's there. What's in the dirt is fact, right? If you find a pot in that particular location, it's that piece of pottery. That's a fact. Now, it doesn't help you explain how it got there or who used it. You know, those are matters of interpretation that you have to balance what you know from this site versus what you know from other sites, what you know from written sources, either in the Bible or not, and how you value those sources relative to one another. So it's not that the archaeology is different, it's that what you do with the data is is different. I suggest in the article there are kind of two big different lenses through which people look at things archaeologically. One is through the lens of history. Archaeology as it helps us understand history. And, uh, and that's kind of the older way of thinking about things. So the way that has kind of domin- come to dominate things in the last 50 years, in academia anyway, is viewing archaeology through the lens of anthropology and related fields like sociology, economics, uh, and so forth. So it's... Um, and, and Christians probably tend, at least Christians who aren't involved in archaeology, probably tend to think in terms of viewing it through the lens of history. What does this, you know, does it, and particularly kind of the apologetics of history, does this prove or disprove something? And that's not the way most archeologists actually think about archeology. span They're thinking, what can I learn about this people and the way they lived and you know, how their society functioned and what, you know, who they traded with and what they ate and where they went to the bathroom? and you know what kind of lives that that they led and you know sometimes big events of history come into it but for most archaeologists it's not so much about answering questions about the big events of history it's about just understanding the world and the people that lived at that time in in that place so and and by the way that's not a concern that Christians don't share archaeologists mm-hmm. who are Christians share that too because that's one of the most important things we can learn from archaeology, you know about the world of the Bible. What was it really like? How did people really live? What did they really think? What did they know and what did they not know? And how did what they know about the world not only differ from what we knew, we know, but also how did it shape the way they interpreted events and the way that they behaved and their faith? So, um, all of those things are things we can learn from archaeology to a degree. And there are some things that are enlightening and maybe surprising. For example, at a place called Arad in the south of Israel, there's a it was a fortress built, rebuilt. There was actually a town there, but a fortified town rebuilt by Rehoboam right after the split between the northern and the southern kingdom after Solomon's death and they were afraid of invasion from Egypt, and the Bible tells us that. By the way, archeology span doesn't have Mm -hmm. to tell us that, but this confirms it because he built up the fortress. You know, we can see the fortress was built up at that time. So it fits the biblical picture. But interestingly, there was a temple there. Now, there shouldn't have been a temple there, right? If you're an Orthodox Old Testament believer, there's only one temple, but there was a temple there. And there's some evidence to suggest that in that temple, they not only worshipped the God of Israel, they also worshipped the goddess Asherah as the wife of Yahweh. Now, some people, some Christians react negatively to that because that's not Orthodox Old Testament faith, but if you read the Old Testament fairly carefully, you might realize that not everybody at that time was necessarily all that Orthodox and faithful. And so maybe here, assuming that we're right about that temple at Arad, you know, being a place where the syncretistic worship occurred, that gives us a picture of the worship life of people. And this was right after Solomon's death, within a decade or two, probably. And the place was occupied over a longer period of time, but that's when it would have, you know, uh, this particular part would have come to prominence. So we learn a lot of things that aren't history in the sense of big events, but are history in the sense of the way people actually lived at those times. And it helps to fill in gaps in the Bible, you know, and also to help us read the Bible more accurately. Cause sometimes our modern presuppositions prevent us from reading the Bible, reading what's actually on the page correctly. Do you have an example of that? That'd be really interesting. Like where where some
0: sort of archeological artifact has helped you say, oh, you know what? I'm not reading this passage of scripture in the same way it changed the way you understood a passage of scripture me personally well or just in general i mean if there's one you personally that you can think of i know we didn't give you this one ahead of time
2: well i'll give you i'll give you one um from my own personal experience i mentioned that i worked at the site that's associated with the battle between david and goliath right Mm -hmm. and working there you know really kind of opened my eyes to rereading that narrative And for example, I never really thought about the fact that in the narrative, David goes up and tries on Saul's armor. Well, here's a fact for you we know from archaeology people didn't wear armor at that time. That is to say, people from the Middle East didn't wear armor. Who did wear armor were the Philistines and the people associated with that group we vaguely call the Sea Peoples who had invaded. The Philistines were one of the groups associated with these Sea Peoples known as the Peleshet. You know, we get Peleshet, Philistine, Palestine, all those words are variations on the same word. But they came from the area to the north of Greece that we think of as the Balkans in that area, and, and the eastern part of the Aegean region, maybe even parts of up northwestern Turkey. And they wore armor there. So how did you know, so here's the thing, right? Saul had armor. He was the king, but he's probably the only one who had armor. He had gotten it somehow. We don't know how, but the very fact that Saul had armor is significant. And, And the reason David didn't feel comfortable wearing it, because nobody wore armor, except, you know, the very few people who would have had it. So that you know, okay. and, and which got me to think, for example, about the whole fight between David and Goliath. It made me realize that from a military perspective, David had all the advantages in that fight. Really? Yeah. Well, when you think about it, uh, Goliath, I mean, he's a big guy. So we give him a check on that mm-hmm. side for size and strength, yeah. right? But he's wearing heavy armor. He's carrying a big shield. And his fighting weapon is a spear and a club. The spear was maybe six feet to eight feet long at the most. So his effective combat range is eight feet. David is lighter on his feet. He's not wearing armor, he's fast. He's younger and probably more nimble as well. And as long as he's not so stupid as to get within eight feet, there is nothing that that Goliath could do to hurt him. Right, so David was invincible to Goliath as long as he stayed 10 feet away. right? And he had a weapon with an effective combat range of maybe you know, 20 to 60 feet, if he was good, depending on how good he was with it. So, that, by the way, this doesn't in any way diminish the miraculous nature that God worked through him because it, the text doesn't really present it as a miracle. It just mm-hmm. describes what happened and says that God was with him and you know and guided him as it happened so in some ways you know being exposed to that has helped me realize that yes god was with david and, and blessed him and he was victorious in that fight but on the other hand it wasn't kind of the sunday school picture that you get either you know this was a fight in which if david didn't do something stupid he couldn't lose he might not win it but he couldn't lose it all he had to do was use his speed maneuverability to stay more than 10 feet away. So that's a personal example, and it's not necessarily one of, that's profoundly theological in any way, but it's opened my eyes to reading the Bible in a richer, fuller, more understanding way, at least that one episode.
1: So you mentioned a while back uh, people coming to you and saying, oh, well, this disproves yeah. the Bible. And you said, you know, it can't disprove or prove anything. But what are, what are maybe some examples of some evidence that has, has contradicted or had tension with the biblical account? And then how do Christians uh, react to handle uh, discoveries like that?
2: Well, when it comes to these kind of things, I think you have to make a distinction. There are really two different problems here. One is the problem of what we don't find, I'll give you an example of that. In the last 60 years or so, there was a growing movement in academia that suggested that the Bible's narrative about how kingship arose in Israel was false. That is, the Bible suggests that Saul became king and then David, and this happened maybe starting around 1050 B.C. You know, David comes in just a little before 1000 B.C. You know, and and then he and Solomon rule through the, you know, through the early 900s. So, uh, but archaeologically, there was no evidence to support the idea of kingship in Judah in the south at that time. So, uh, academics began to argue that the Bible's picture was wrong, that kingship may have arisen originally in the north, and if there were such a person as David and Solomon, there probably weren't. They probably didn't even exist. But if they existed, they were probably, you know, local, local tribal chieftains whose fame got blown up out of proportion by later generations. So that's the argument that you see arising, and it has its roots in the fact that nothing had been found to suggest that there was a king in the south because Israelites didn't, at least we haven't found very many monumental buildings and things like that. So in the 1990s, things began to change. Uh, First major development was the discovery in Dan, that city that's kind of the northern boundary of biblical Israel. Uh, There was a little tablet found uh, that mentioned the house of David. Now some some of those uh, academics who didn't believe that David existed tried to explain it as the house, that is temple, of Dude, a God named Dude, D-W-D. Um, and, of course, we know of no God by that name anywhere in the ancient world. Uh, it was a pretty weak attempt to avoid the obvious, right? Uh, because the context of this tab is talking about political things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not talking about temples. So... Uh, it was a pretty weak attempt, but they made a valiant effort, and most even most fairly liberal scholars began to say, well, okay, maybe there was, maybe it was just a little later, you know, and so forth. But there probably at least was a historical David. Well, then in uh, later in the nineteen nineties or through the two thousands, an Israeli archaeologist Eliot Mazar, a daughter of a very famous, even more famous Israeli archaeologist, was doing excavation just south of the Temple Mound on a what was known to archaeologists as the large stone structure. And turns out from the things that she found that it was probably, a, almost certainly, a palace um, and probably dates from the time of David and Solomon. Now, we know from the Bible that that particular location was not the location of the palace that Solomon built, which was to the west, to the south, was the place where David's palace was built. And so the Israeli archeologist, Elliot Mazar, claimed that this was a palace of David. And I think she's probably right. But even if she's not right, it was a palace. Nobody debates that anymore. Um, It may have been a fortified place, but it was certainly a, a palace also. So that suggests that there was kingship in in Israel. And then we get to the place where I excavated at Kirbet Kayafa, you know, uh, starting in 2008. It was my first year there, first full year there of anybody, This is the year the excavation started. But turns out to be a dedicated military base that took um, hundreds of thousands of pounds of stone to be moved to build it. So this is not the sort of thing that a few farmers throw up on the weekend to protect their sheep, right? It's a, it's a border fortress guarding the border between Judah and the Philistines. And it had a garrison for at least a generation, and it was a pretty powerfully fortified place. And so it required, and all archeologists would agree with this, that building that kind of thing is prima facie evidence of some strong central political control because nobody's going to do that kind of work, you know, just because they're bored. So it takes somebody with money and or power or both to get that kind of job done because it's the ancient equivalent of building an aircraft carrier, right? It takes several years to build and, you know, a number of people you've got to manage and control their labor. So again, now we have, you know, it We did carbon-14 dating of that site that probably suggests that the end of its period of use was 1000 BC plus or minus 25 years. So 1000 BC is the beginning of David's reign. So this place was used right at the time of David, a little before that and probably a little after, uh, and then it was abandoned. So this suggests that there was some centralized power in Israel um, at the t- very time that the Bible suggests that kingship is emerging or has emerged in the south, so now it's pretty hard to argue that the biblical picture of the development of kingship is wrong. You know, uh, some people still try, but again, it's a fairly weak argument. Now, there's we found s- enough stuff that it helps to uh, fill in that gap, the archaeological gap. So the problem get back to your question, was what we had not found, right? And people argued the Bible was wrong because we didn't find what we expected to find. Mm -hmm. And of course, every archaeologist knows the, I just missed that feeling, right? Uh, When I was one day working, we had a guest, uh, a young woman who was an Israeli student at a university there who came and excavated with us all day. Spent an entire day. She had her little corner she worked in. She Worked really hard. It was hot, sweaty, miserable work all day long. She worked as hard as she could and found nothing all day long. Went away, kind of disappointed. The next morning, she was didn't come back. So somebody else was working there. They hadn't worked half an hour. <laughs> They'd gone down maybe another inch and found the most beautiful little p- broken pottery, you know. And they were jumping up and down and all happy. <laughs> so the problem with archaeology is. What you find and what you don't find is, humanly speaking, accident, mm-hmm. right? You may, the, you know, that woman, she didn't find that pot. It was there the whole time. She just missed it by an inch, you know, and you don't know what is off to the left or off to the right, a foot or an inch or a, is a little deeper down, because archeologists never excavate an entire site. It's rare for a site to be excavated more than about 10% because it's expensive, it's time-consuming, and we want to leave something behind for 100 years from now when people have better technology and can maybe understand the site better than we can because of advances. So it's partially by design that you don't excavate the whole thing, but that means all of our data is always partial. So we have a saying in archaeology that... That absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That is, because you don't find something doesn't mean there's nothing there to find or that there wasn't something there. And that's important when it comes to this problem because people often argue that the Bible's wrong because of lack of evidence to support it. And our response to that should always be to point out that in Israel, for example, probably. Uh, I don't know, certainly less than 10% of 1%, a tenth of 1% of all the archaeological sites have been seriously excavated to Mm -hmm. any great degree. So we're always working with very sparse data. And when you add that to the interpretive issue that I mentioned before, you just have to be Mm -hmm. very skeptical about the about what we don't find now the other side of the coin there are problems created by what we do find and uh, I'll give you just a quick example of that about ten years or so ago there was an article uh, about the discovery of a house in Thebes in Egypt Thebes is in the south of Egypt and this was significant because it was the house was designed like an Israeli house like an Israelite house in Israel in in the, most of the later biblical period after the time of David and Solomon, there was a very uh, common style of house that we call a four-room house. Name's a little misleading because they'd always have four rooms. Uh, today, we tend to call them pillared houses. That style of architecture arose because they didn't have big trees in Israel, so they couldn't, you had to have pillars to support the roof It was if it was gonna be more than about six or eight feet wide because they didn't have structural steel. They were building with dirt and sticks and rocks, and rocks are expensive. So mostly they were building with dirt and sticks. Rocks are expensive because it takes a lot of labor to move them around. So uh, this guy found a house that he claimed to be was a four-room house in Thebes in the south of Egypt. And his argument was, the Bible's wrong. The Israelites were not in the north of Egypt. They were in Thebes in the south of Egypt because he found one house that he thought was the same design as an Israelite house from three centuries later. And, you know, at the time you look at it and you say, "Eh, we don't really like to make big proclamations on the basis of one of anything. Archaeology is about the collective body of data, not just about one pot that you find most of the time. So, that claim that he made, that the Bible was wrong about where the Israelites lived, they didn't live in the land of Goshen, they lived down in Thebes, was really a pretty facially absurd claim. And it wasn't widely accepted. But it does illustrate the problem that we see. People make these claims based on data that they've interpreted a certain way, and what they think of as the implications of that data. And often... Either the data turns out to be something else, or the mis- it's been misinterpreted. Or, by the way, here's another thing you should know about archaeology: the most important thing you have to have to be an archaeologist besides money um, is an, uh, is an imagination, because you find one little thing or maybe one wall, and you have to imagine what the whole mm-hmm. thing looked like. Right? You're, so archaeologists are always doing imaginative reconstructions of things. And you you need that because again, we don't have the whole city. We just have the walls and some houses, and we have to think about what they look like. And we have some texts that help us along the way. But um, you know, sometimes imagination can lead you down the wrong path too. So the most important thing an archaeologist needs is sometimes his biggest problem mm-hmm. at the same time. So those are the two kinds of issues, you know, things that we don't find that we think we ought to find and things that we do find that we think we shouldn't have mm-hmm. found. And again, what we do with that data, how we interpret it, that leads to the claims that people make, mm-hmm. which to get to the last part of your question, sort of how do we respond to that? I think the most important things that people need to know is you should always... Whether the claims are things you want to hear or you don't want to hear, whether you think they're good or bad, you should approach them with an equal degree of skepticism, because quite often in archaeology, things that turn up turn out at the beginning to look one way, end up looking a little differently when we find a little more, and so, uh, you know, my advice to everybody is. Uh, take everything with a grain of salt, especially when it the news first comes out. Because you know, five or ten years from now, we'll have a much better picture of what this means after we've done some more work. Uh, but let's not get either over fearful or over enthusiastic one way or the other. It's good, but again, we we don't want to make you know choices based on just one discovery. We want. To build up a whole picture, and that that takes time, and 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 people make mistakes. Sometimes they make mistakes because they're frauds and charlatans, and they're just trying to get attention. That never happens on the internet, I know, but sometimes it happens in the world of theology. Uh, but um, it also happens because people are just over enthusiastic. Not everybody who makes a mistake is a fraud or a charlatan. There are some of those. And they're best shunned and avoided. <laughs> but um, you know, also there are just people who are really enthusiastic and really excited about what they found, and they get a little carried away. So caution is always probably the best advice for any kind of claim.
1: Yeah. So your articles about the limits of archaeology, and we've talked a lot about those. We're never going to prove the Bible based on archaeology um, or disprove it. What are some of the for Christians, let's say, what are what are the benefits of continuing to uh, excavate and continuing to to follow archaeology?
2: Well, I mentioned one of them already, and that is just simply reading the Bible more accurately, reading it with more knowledge. You know, modern people, we look at the ancient world and we think, boy, these guys are really stupid. They didn't know that the earth revolved around the sun and the moon revolved around the earth in a Copernican sort of way, right? They they had all sorts of weird ideas about the way the cosmos was structured. What what stupid people were they, right? Well, that's true. They didn't know what we know about the world today. They didn't know about bacteria, for example, and things like that. But here's another truth. They know things about the world that we don't know. You know the that is to say, their, the way they saw the world, understood the world, interpreted the world, was based on their observations of the world, and they're putting the pieces together that they could see. And a lot of that escapes us, because we don't see it, or if we see it, we interpret it differently. So, the first thing that I try to emphasize is that... Uh, Archaeology helps us to understand the way they saw the world, which helps us to understand what they're talking about when they put their ideas in writing. So sometimes it's filling in historical details, but sometimes it's just understanding the way that language worked, the way that their world of thought worked. For, ex- give you a quick example, when Christians today read Genesis 1, the creation account, they think almost exclusively in terms of what it says about us about humankind, about the material world, right? That's probably, whenever I teach Bible class on Genesis 1, those are the kind of questions that I get. But that's not the way that an ancient Israelite would have read Genesis 1. Uh, They would have, of course, been interested in that, but the thing that they would have taken away is what it says about God, what it says about Israel's God and how Israel's God is different from the gods of the ancient world as they're depicted in the so-called creation accounts from Mesopotamia and Egypt. So what they understood, or what left off the, I sort of said left off the page, but they didn't have pages, <laughs> what left off the scroll to them, actually I lied because scrolls are not, you know how they make scrolls, right? They didn't just take like a potato peeler and peel the skin off a cow in one long continuous line to get a 40-foot piece of leather, you know, scrolls are sewn together pages. Uh, so they did actually have pages, they just didn't turn them, they just unrolled them. So, uh, but what leapt off the scroll to them was what Genesis 1 says about the uniqueness of Israel's God. And that's an important, different way of reading Genesis 1. It doesn't negate the other, it doesn't mean that you know the questions that we have are bad questions but it does force us to ask questions that would not have occurred to us otherwise that are really important for interpreting Genesis 1 uh, and usually get missed in most Christian circles because we don't think the way they thought about the world. So we just don't think to ask those questions.
1: Is there anything else on this topic that, that we didn't cover today that you'd like to add?
2: Oh, yeah. How many more hours did you (laughs) say we were going to go? You know, I I think I said one of them just a minute ago, and that's when it comes to assessing these things, the important thing is not rushing to judgment. And the modern world is not geared for patience, right? We're geared for instant data and, you know, getting an answer to our questions. I go online. I want to know, you know, my wife and I were sitting at lunchtime watching something, and it, she raised a question of, you know, what does this happen? And first thing I did was get out my phone. And 30 seconds later, I had the answer to the question. Here's what, you know, here's what happened with this. And I didn't know it either. But that's the world that we live in. It doesn't train us to be patient. It trains us to be impatient. And when it comes to archaeology, that's a real problem because again it's this gradual accumulation of a body of knowledge about the world of the bible that is what archaeology produces and that takes time because it's slow motion work and so whenever you hear something whether it sounds good or whether it sounds bad you shouldn't always kind of be cautious and not rush to judgment about it and don't believe everything you hear but also don't be afraid of what you hear. You know, one of the things that strikes me, because I'm old, right? I'm, I'm the oldest guy here by about 600 years. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that I've noticed over the last 40 years or so is that Christians have become really afraid here in America. They have become uh, uncertain they lack confidence it's not they lack faith but they lack confidence in their faith they feel like they need to boost it they need something else outside to boost it so the apologetic use of archaeology to kind of prove the bible i'm going to i'm going to force you to believe the bible's true right i'm going to make you believe it by proving it to you um that's not really a healthy Christian faith, right? What God says is, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So, you know, in a world where there are not only charlatans and fraudsters who pass out bad information, but there are academics who, you know, because of their own presuppositions are are trying to find ways to bring the Bible into doubt. Um, and there are those who are just overly enthusiastic and get excited and carried, get carried away. And they don't mean ill, but they can do a lot of harm nonetheless. And by the way, this does lead to harm. If you make a claim that turns out to be false, that just raises the level of doubt even further, right? So it's a matter of responsibility not to make those kind of claims. But I think for Christians in the world today, One of the dangers about archaeology is that it kind of can lead us into that trap of feeling like, you know, we're going to prove the Bible's true. We're going to make people believe. We should be witnessing to people, not on the basis of, I can prove that David killed Goliath, which, by the way, I should say, nothing that we found at Kirbet Keaphat. Proves or disproves that David killed the Bible. Although I did bring back the stone that David used. (laughs) The Bible says he picked up a stone that was there and used it in this thing. And I was there. I found a stone. I brought it back. The Bible says there was a stone there. I found a stone there that proves it's true. I brought the stone back. It's in my office. I shouldn't, I'm not going to tell you where my office is <laughs> the because somebody will break in and steal it. <laughs> Occasionally I take it to class and show people and say, this stone proves the story's mm-hmm. true because the Bible said there was a stone there and I found one there. That's great. Uh, so, you know, ultimately the Christian faith is about believing the witness of God's word and particularly what it says about Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection, which archaeology can't prove, by the way can't prove that Jesus rose from the grave, can't disprove that he rose from the grave. And our love for Christ and our love for other people that we want to share what Jesus has done to them, that's what matters. Archaeology is useful. Um, I happen to teach Hebrew you know, from time to time. Um, that's useful too. Greek is useful, history is useful, all things are useful. In you know, growing understanding the Christian faith, and archaeology has its place, and I love it, uh, but it it's it, it it will never take the place of faith, and we should never try to use it to take the place of faith. You know, our boldness should not be to our witness to Christ should not be based on the fact that Professor Adams has the very rock that David used <laughs> to kill Goliath in his office. Uh, it should be based in what we know about Christ based on our relation our faith relationship with him and you know the significance of his death and resurrection for us. So I think that's what I would say about archaeology it has its place but its limits are ironically not the limits of what it can produce the ultimate limits and I didn't say this in the article I probably should have it's not maybe it's not too late to go back and edit it and put it in. The ultimate limit of archaeology is that it can't replace faith. Hmm. So maybe that's a good place to stop.
0: Yeah. I think it's an excellent place to stop, Dr. Adams. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it for driving all the way out here and joining us in the studio. It's
2: great. I used to work in this building, you know. Did you really? Yeah, I did. And I worked for KFU. I was on the board for, for KFUO for, oh, wow. for a long time. And uh, I worked at KFU. I worked in this building on two different occasions, actually, for years at a time. So. I used, people used to know me here. Now I come and I have to sign in, you know, um, and they're afraid I'm going to steal their rock the office or something. I, I don't know. No, it's great to be here. Great to be with you. Thank you for having me. And uh, I hope I can come back sometime. I'm sure we can work that out. Thank you, Stacey. Appreciate it.
0: Absolutely.
2: Thank you for all of you
0: who are out there listening. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Lutheran Witness podcast. If you are interested, and I'm sure this uh, podcast has piqued your interest in archaeology, pick up your copy of the September issue of The Lutheran Witness. You can order that at cph.org witness, or you can learn more about the uh, issue on our website, which is witness.lcms.org, where we will always help you learn to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective.